All right. Hi, welcome to Women in Environmental Science. I'm Serenia, and I have Diana Vieira with me. Um, and thank you so much for coming to my podcast, Dr. Diana. Now, could you elaborate more on who you are, where you're from, and what work you're doing currently? Well, uh, good morning. <laughs> First of all, thank you for having me. Uh, well, I'm Diana Vieira. I'm Portuguese. Um, I'm a scientist born in Portugal, but currently living in Italy. Uh, my background is uh, on environmental engineering, more dedicated to waste and wastewater management. But I started doing research uh, on the impact of wildfires during my PhD, namely on impact of uh, wildfires on soils, water and ecosystems. And currently I'm working in the European Commission and I am a researcher. I develop research on soils too, um, especially soil pollution, healthy soils. And I try to provide to policymakers uh, feedback uh, for regulation, new laws, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, gotcha. So what kind of solutions? Um, yeah, could you elaborate more on the solutions you provide for like soil? <laughs> Well, it depends a little bit on the uh, on the on the targets. On the, for instance, uh, um, if we are talking about impacts on wildfires, solutions are generally mitigation or uh, procedures that allow us to uh, understand where the impacts come uh, are higher or but if we are talking about for for instance emerging pollutants in soil or something related to that and where the knowledge for instance in some areas is are not so well developed then we'll try to advance with the best solutions at the current moment and try to um, provide feedback on this matter. But it depends a little bit if we are talking about uh, concrete uh, developed knowledge or not. It depends a lot. But yeah. yeah, so it just depends on the situation and everything. Yes, exactly. <laughs> gotcha. So actually, like going back a little bit, um, what do like how, what is the effect of wildfires on soil erosion? Like, how are these two things related? Well, um, so uh, if you allow me to describe a little bit what happens immediately after the fire. So basically, you have a nice neat forest. The fire comes, burns down everything, and what happens in the first instance is that this uh, cannot be covered. This protection of the soil is eliminated, is combusted. But on the top of that. The temperatures uh, of the fire change the topsoil basically. So the soil doesn't have the normal uh, protection that it had before, but also is more prone for transport. Okay. And basically, uh, what happens from their owners is because it's easier to transport these sediments. Uh, you lose uh, the soil in the local, which is an important thing for productivity, but you also transport uh, sediments with nutrients and pollutants to the water bodies, which is another thing that uh, like it's called offsite effects that, uh, that uh, it's, mm. 
it's beyond the area of the burnt area. So that's why it's so complex to address. <laughs> oh, yeah. And that can cause like algal blooms and, and things like that. Exactly. And uh, for instance, there was uh, there were very good examples of uh, um, great impacts of fires on the United States, for instance, that during 10 years, I believe they removed sediments from reservoirs because they reduced the reservoir capacity to retain uh, water for wa uh, water provision for, I think this was near uh, Fort Collins, I believe. Uh, uh, I think this is was the Heyman fire, for instance, and that's uh, like a very extreme example. Besides the ecological effect on water, you also have damage in infrastructures that can be very, uh, very impactful, let's say, in terms economically, uh, also, of course. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so now going back to like wildfires in the United States, um, you have like the West Coast, the California wildfires that are so um, famous for having wildfires. And then you have the East Coast of the United States, which usually doesn't have many wildfires, many notable wildfires. So What's the difference in those two areas of the United States and what are other factors that cause wildfires? Well, uh, I, I have to say I'm not entirely uh, uh, expert from wildfires in the United States. So if my, my peer colleagues see this, uh, uh, please correct me after. But I believe that, and especially because I consulted the IPCC report on this matter, uh, it's uh, can be driven by uh, two main reasons. One is the fact of the climate change and you have more extreme uh, events happening, more extreme climate conditions, in this case, temperatures. Mm -hmm. uh, um, so apparently on the west side, apparently you have more favorable conditions to have uh, of, uh, for fire occurrence. And I also verified that there is also um, a lot of attempts in uh, fire suppression or probably more forestry management that might not uh, uh, allow uh, or might uh, promote a little bit the the increase in burnt area in those right. uh, areas for instance uh, just to give you an example uh, fire suppression uh, is generally considered our reaction towards fire right so basically you try to put down all the fires that you understand yeah. but that you see that you uh, visualize and you try to save people but there is also the point that when we do that we accumulate biomass and if uh, uh, there there is a more likelihood of having bigger fires more destructive ones so uh, it's uh, a balance I'm not saying that we shouldn't uh, put down the fires but we should have in an additional uh, uh, biomass uh, management on a forest lands, let's say like that. Yeah, that makes sense. And I'm interested, like I read that you did field work in um, soil erosion. So how does field work typically like conducted um, when you were working with soil erosion? Is it collecting soil samples? That's really interesting to me. Uh, 
Uh, okay, so basically that goes back to all this component of hydrology, right? Right. So it, it depends a little bit how uh, how is your team organized. For instance, um, during my my PhD, I had my study site, a lovely burnt catchment uh, <laughs> in the central of Portugal. I would go there approximately um, every week, every two weeks, visit the site. And I had to make uh, the monitoring of this, uh, of this area, uh, measuring erosion, act the actual process uh, in different ways at different scales. I had a very good support on technical uh, sensors, etc., etc. For instance, I had uh, a channel, normal partial channel that you you can uh, measure the the water uh, volume, the, the the stream flow from that catchment, but also turbidity sensors and all the these other components that directly and indirectly help you to measure erosion. And then I had smaller plots with tanks of 500 liters that would accumulate all the water. I would have to take samples, determine the sediments, calculate then everything <laughs> that happened in the previous week. Also measure rainfall, um, meteor stations and all. It's very technical, mm -hmm. but it's uh, it was the, the high point of my week, I have to say. It was very nice. It's very wow. good to see a burnt area to recover because at the beginning is very emotionally, you know, it's, yeah. it's uh, impactful, it off, I would say. Yeah, it starts off completely desolate of life and then it starts to grow back and that's some beautiful um, yeah. like cycle you can see with your own eyes. Yeah, that's yeah. Cool. And like yeah. reflect all these different variables. Um, and, and what's like, how do you, do you like model um, data using those the variables you collected or like what's like the next step in your there then it depends a little bit how you manage but uh, uh, for instance I had very intense field work with a very intense data collection uh, so then I used this uh, I analyze uh, this data for quality and then I use it for modeling and what I try to predict is um, uh, the existence of extreme events or calibrate an hydrological model uh, to predict the existence of a potential, find a way to predict this uh, potential extreme events in the future, let's say like that, for us with small indicators, let's assume tomorrow I'll have 100 millimeters of rainfall. I just run my model under some circumstances and I try to say, hey, please, be careful, we can have some debris flows or extreme flooding coming from this area. Everything is for uh, um, applied science. Yeah. And also um, then locally, I also try to predict the amount of erosion because, I mean, we don't want to lose our soil more than what is necessary. It's a non-renewable resource. So uh, every little bit of uh, soil that is lost <laughs> is very important, I would say. Of course, yeah. And I guess climate change like, is definitely speeding this process up, right? You've got 
increases in temperature that are causing more wildfires, more soil erosion, but what other like um, more intricate, you know, um, kind of uh, systems are happening that, that are associated with soil erosion? Well, <clears throat> there are several things happening that can promote soil erosion and are basically not only in burnt areas, I, I have to say, but uh, for instance, uh, in land uses that uh, have considerable higher amount of uh, soil losses, which are the agricultural land, mm -hmm. there are several drivers uh, for that. For instance, climate uh, promotes a shift uh, in the precipitation, so you have more extreme events, generally mm -hmm. uh, uh, more extreme rainfall events drive uh, to higher uh, soil erosion rates. And then you have also another point, we have um, a huge amount of population increasing that needs to be fed, right. we need to produce food. We need our soils to be healthy to produce food. So there's a potential increase in agricultural area and with it also increase in soil erosion. Of course, with climate change, some of the areas that previously were very productive can reduce their productivity. So these shifts in land use can trigger some colleagues uh, in my work uh, estimated the 12 to 22% uh, of increase in soil erosion in the EU until 2050. So with the current reality, this might be a little bit of a problem. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so just like going back to the bigger picture of things, what does it really mean to be an environmental engineer for soil health? And why is that important? Uh, <laughs> well, it, it's highly, it's, it's very complicated uh, to, to define it easily because uh, uh, I, I am a part of a team uh, and my team has uh, many expertise, okay, many, many people with different backgrounds. Right agronomists, uh, biologists, etc, etc. So me, like many other, we try first to identify uh, threats uh, in soil health. That is uh, human activities that can affect our soil health and then our soil cannot provide the usual ecosystem services. We are highly dependent on soil for our life. Uh, many people don't realize that. The simplest example is the food. We need right. food and for food we need soil. Right. Exactly. But we don't, we do not only need the soil to be there, it needs to be a good soil to produce nutritive food. Let's mm -hmm. say it like that. If uh, uh, it's not uh, nutritious uh, enough, uh, then we are not healthy too. So basically it's uh, on this line. So first we identify the threats. It's okay. I can <laughs> so first we identify the threats that can uh, compromise our health mm -hmm. and lower the productivity. Um, soil pollution, not adequate land management, uh, um, too much application of fertilizer, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And then we try to make part of the solutions. And the solutions, you have to be very creative. So you 
we are getting very inspired in nature-based solutions, but you always have an engineering, uh, environmental engineering compound over there. So you try to imitate nature, but always with uh, physics uh, uh, on the background to try to solve uh, solve problems. If I may have a, may give an example, yeah. soil erosion um, after fire or not after fire is easily prevented by providing an additional cover to the soil. Either if you put another plant there, or if you provide put uh, mulching of organic layer over your soil. The rainfall will not have so much impact in soil. The sediments cannot uh, transport uh, so easily. And so basically, yeah, exactly. But this is physics, right? This is a very easy concept. So we make part also in the process uh, of uh, the, uh, the solutions for the impacts and also on the assessments, the modeling part Mm -hmm. of the environmental engineering can help us uh, to predict uh, and also make better decisions in the future and try to understand uh, if uh, we are going in a correct way or not for uh, multidisciplinary um, yeah. uh, points of view because that's, uh, that's the whole thing of uh, the environmental engineer. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. I was thinking the work you're doing is so interdisciplinary. You've got you've got so many factors to look at. It's like chemistry, like you said, physics, the biology, like adding um, this the organic layer on top, things like that. That's all of those can uh, work together to prevent more soil erosion. And come you come up with like simple to implement ideas, but um, I guess like talking to the people and getting the work actually done might be a little bit more challenging. So have you had like any experience with like um, doing like uh, science communication to these people who are actually like going to plant, um, like uh, adding another plant on top of the soil to prevent erosion? Like, are there times where you have interactions with the people doing that? Well, the, the stakeholders associated with soil can be variable. Let's, let's more or less put it like this. If we're talking about a forest, you have the landowner, you have the municipality, <laughs> you have the country. So yeah. in the country scale, you have like uh, uh, government, uh, the, the politicians that make laws and on the municipality, the scale is smaller. They want to prevent uh, the pollution on their water bodies. And our little landowner, uh, uh, needs to keep the productivity of their land. So they all have different interests. And uh, when we try to provide the knowledge, we need to adapt very well <laughs> to the to the to the, the the scheme and the interests of the 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 policy uh, the stakeholders mm -hmm. for soil and land and uh, general people are very open to receive the knowledge i'm not saying so the implementation is really hard because most of the things that we suggest imply costs and if there is one thing everybody asks us back is the cost benefit of all measures that we suggest and here is where it's harder to provide uh, 
um, knowledge on the value of a given ecosystem services. For instance, how much is the value of clean water, right? Yeah, wow. That's something yeah. really hard to quantify. There are some estimations, but still it's really hard because in a country that has a lot of water available, that should be a very different value from a country where water scarcity is a very important issue. So uh, layers of complexity, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, yes, uh, we try to and slowly, I think we 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 work together for uh, for a better for a better future. Let's say like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, that kind of like leads into my next question, which is about technology and how that can um, help manage soil erosion. So, are there more like innovative are, are innovative solutions coming up? Like, can you give examples of um, potential? Um, very adaptable solutions, like you said, to all these different stakeholders that may utilize like new technologies? Well, um, uh, it might be, uh, yeah, it depends a little bit. There's, um, there's always a new technology. There's always a new group developing a new way of uh, protecting soil erosion. Just picking uh, up this as an example, but it can be very well applied to soil pollution or uh, well, like uh, uh, phytoremediation and, and uh, techniques like that. Um, so you always have a novel uh, uh, technology coming up and uh, this, this novel technology always passed by a process of testing and upscaling, which is generally the, 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 the most difficult part uh, from passing from a lab situation to treating a, a huge area that was affected by a fire. For instance, Portugal had in 2017, 500,000 hectares burned. And uh, our solution that we provide, for instance, to mitigate this impact should be uh, apply organic mulching over burnt areas. But you don't have the money mm -hmm. to treat 500,000 hectares of right. a forest. So here comes other technologies that also help us a lot. And this has been the 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 driver of the most advanced especially in modeling remote sensed information yeah. help us to identify the most critical areas in which for sure your investment in mulching either if it's a nature-based solution locally uh -huh. uh, will be more effective so then um uh, also improved our modeling skills a lot because in our days you can have uh, uh, all the vegetation indices uh, in a very uh, high resolution. Um, and uh, you can also uh, provide a, a very simple and easy information to the stakeholders so that they can make the decisions uh, uh, faster. So you have two types of technology happening locally, mitigation, and then in the upscaling with um, 
in the modeling component, right. better information, especially the, from remote sensing uh, data, big data, I would have to say. I hope this answered totally to the question because I try to give the whole perspective. It's always very hard. No, that makes sense. Yeah, it's hard to like exactly point out a solution that works, right? It, yeah, exactly. It, like you said, very be very adaptable. Um, but you said big data, right? So that's like, um, can you describe how you use, um, again, more uh, like, I assume like the work you're doing is mo is modeling, right? You're using technology to try predicting when do fires occur. So can you explain how you use big data in your work? Yeah, well, uh, for, for um, uh, I do not predict uh, the fire occurrence. That's for a fire behavior, but I do use modeling at the big scales, for instance, at the EU scale. And I try to, recently to um, predict the soil losses from a single fire year uh, in the whole EU. So you can imagine the amount of that, that. And if you try to predict, let's say, with a pixel of uh, 20, uh, 25 meters per 25 for the whole EU, you already start to have a problem because of compute. your simple computer cannot do this, basically. Right. So then uh, it starts all with uh, where the fire occurred, what are the soil characteristics of this area, what is the topography, what is the rainfall, and all these layers accumulate in a massive calculation yeah. that needs to be spatial explicit. And here is where you have your programming skills at hand. <laughs> To, to try to, to make it the, the best way possible in the most effective way possible because there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of uh, redoing the calculations over and over again, as you imagine. And where we are relying on remote sense data the most. So I can only anticipate the recovery of a place if I can understand if that place recovered and with that I can only see it by the vegetation recovery so if I look to the vegetation in that given pixel over time and I see that is improving then I can more or less expect a recovery to of the or a reduction of the erosion with time mm -hmm. basically satellite data like have you heard of sentinel 2 and sentinel 5 yeah yeah we we use it uh for uh, for uh, um uh ground cover indices but also we also have to use it for um land use properties for instance i have to distinguish what is a forest what is a grassland what is a, an agricultural place mm -hmm. and uh, uh, these types uh, of information comes always from a single or a multiple uh, um, sensors from satellite data it can vary a lot depends also if you're talking about 2010 or if you're talking about uh, today and right. the, the the source of the data can vary. There's a lot of uh, information out there. It's a world on its own. <laughs> but uh, but yes, uh, generally generally we use uh, Sentinel data for most of the information. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm just wondering because I was looking into the um, like remote sensing and trying to trying to learn how to do that because because as you're saying, like that's like the main um, way we can understand um, uh, soil improvement over time. Yeah, and for for a matter of scale, uh, I can go do field work in a given point, right? But how expandable is my vision and my information to the rest of the country or the rest of the world? Uh, so, because I, there's a limit of our physical efforts visiting a, a place or costs, let's say like that, of all the member states or all the countries in this world try to understand what are the environmental problems they have. So uh, trying to associate process with information provided by satellite has been uh, very high and with a huge potential for us to monitor our own land, oceans, and uh, not only land, uh, you have to make sure <laughs> I say this. There's a lot of monitoring um, out there thanks to satellite uh, information. Yeah, like satellite can help you get the big global view on um, one issue you're trying to solve instead of field work, which just one tiny pixel on that entire globe, right? Yes, exactly. But don't forget that uh, the information that you... Yes, exactly, because um, uh, it, it happened to me very often that we have modeling uh, results and they don't match exactly with local assessments. Mm -hmm. So, uh, because uh, modeling is a simplification, right? True. Mm -hmm. Of what, what is in this uh, specific point has a huge area, 25 meter pixel. It's uh, it's more uh, than the 600 square meters. You can have a lot of variability. Just look outside to this area, you'll and the variability is huge. So it's uh, we need it both. There are reasons. There are several reasons why you need it both. If you look to the country perspective, it's better wide modeling. So you will focus in a critical area, but then you have to go there and just see it with your own eyes and see that if the what kind of help this place needs, let's say like right. that. Right. So you need both. You can't forget. We need both always. <laughs> yeah. So like I wanted to talk about like how how did you get connected with doing um, like soil soil erosion research? And I said, you know, um, you said you started off with like water conservation, um, doing things on water. So like, when and how did you get interested in being an environmental scientist slash engineer? Okay, this is a very com complicated uh, thing to reply. I would say so. I always been curious about science in general since I was little. And um, I always played uh, outdoors. And one of my favorite first toys I had was a microscope, let's say like that. So oh, wow. the curiosity was always there. But um, in Portugal, we have to, um, at the age of 16, I believe, you already have to decide what type of uh, line you want to study if you want to go to humanities or if you want to study law or if you want to go for science and that's what I did I chose science immediately and when I choose university 
uh, when I we apply for university courses, I learn uh, uh, about the environmental engineering because we had many offers, and I apply for everywhere environmental engineering. I said this is what I want to do. I'll try in all the universities this, uh, that they have this course, and I was not really sure that would be my that would be my thing. Mm. But it became a passion. I'm very, very uh, eager to say that my this degree in the and science is the best work uh, I could ever get. I'm very satisfied with it. Oh wow! And yeah, if uh, for instance, uh, because I wanted to have an impact, right? I wanted to solve things that are not okay. And uh, um, environmental engineer offered me that, and especially having this multidisciplinary perspective that sometimes you have several accumulated issues on the same place or, and you cannot just tackle things in a very simplistic way. So this, uh, so I would say that when I decided to go to the university, I bet in environmental engineering and then I love it. It was my thing. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I wanted to ask because you were so like um, passionate about what you were saying. So I realized you must have had some like connection to it when you were younger and that just caused you to do environmental engineering. So that's very cool. Um, now going back to like the more um science uh, uh, question um so like how has wildfire patterns changed over time um in the UK or anywhere else that you may have studied and why might these patterns have been like changing maybe climate change might be a big reason yeah it's a quite a complex uh, thing I think it's um uh climate definitely has a role okay so you have uh, areas that are more fire prone than others. That would be the example of the Mediterranean. You also have a little bit of the Mediterranean climate in the west side of the United States. Maybe we have some similarities there also. Yeah. So that is definitely a good driver. But then we uh, humans are, have an important role on the land management. As I told you before, uh, the accumulation of biomass is uh, also a driver or uh, another layer of complexity in which the uh, um, fire occurrence uh, may increase. And, then, yeah. and uh, according to the, to the latest studies, it seems that the area that affects um, the fire prone area that is classical determinant around the Mediterranean, for instance, for you, it's expanding. And that's how you already find some uh, more incidents of uh, boreal fires, mm -hmm. a lot of fires uh, going up the north. And the, the, for us, it's, a very, uh, it's very challenging because then we are seeing fires in locations that we are not used to. And they are not exactly uh, 
areas that are well adapted to, to fire. For instance, in Portugal, in Italy, in Greece, these areas have even vegetation that is very well adapted to fire. The recovery is totally different. In the northern, uh, if you go to the northern hemisphere, to the north, uh, higher in the, in the globe, you won't have that. The impacts can be bigger. But so, and in the final note, not only the management, uh, there is a social component that is very important uh, in, uh, in the fire. There is also the point that you have landowners and you have um, uh, a property defined, this property is from someone. So it, it, this brings... Uh, uh, a mix of, uh, of effects that generally has been translated in increasing fire prone areas and also increasing the size of the fires. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm not entirely sure that the number of fires itself has been increasing. That I, uh, it depends a little bit. Uh, it's a, it's a quite complicated statistics, I would have to say. But the dynamics uh, uh, is that the fire risk increases, especially driven by climate. Right, because you're getting fires at places that have never seen fires. People and the organisms living there are not adapted to those fires. So you can't just snap back to the ecosystem it was before the fire and then you have devastating impacts for probably longer periods of time than you would yeah. in places that are used to fires. Yeah. Yeah. If you understand, for instance, don't forget that humans use fire for a long time already. Okay. okay. So this was always, we always use it for our benefit, uh, manipulation of the vegetation, uh, sometimes in a sustainable way, other times in not a very sustainable way, okay? So uh, uh, it is definitely connected to humans. So uh, it is as complicated as this, yeah, <laughs> I would sure. say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know that. Um... In California, one of the biggest things, one of the biggest fire causers is people are the ones starting the fires and that can cause the, the whole, that whole like area to burn. Um, and also people burn like land, um, like waste, right? So then you have like toxic chemicals coming from that. And that's not, that's not really a wildfire burn, but it's still like impacts on fire uh, that fire, like human caused fires have on like the water, the soil, and the, ourselves again. So yeah, it's like a very intricate web of connections. Very cool. <laughs> and yeah, so, and for like any, would you give any, what advice would you give to anyone who wants to go into um, environmental engineering, um, focusing on like soil erosion or wildfires or water conservation? Ah, well, <laughs> well, advices, well, I would, um, for, for environmental engineering, I think I said it a, a little bit in general, I think if, if you want to have an impact, I think that's an excellent uh, uh, 
um, destiny for, for you to follow. I think environmental engineering uh, can give you working in the area, or even if you're a scientist, uh, if you think that you want to go for science, um, I think that uh, that's very rewarding because uh, despite not everybody might listen, let's say like this, you try to give solutions to people for real problems and you try to make a better future. This is a very hopeful thing, you know, that we want to solve everything. Uh-huh. And the, the, in this case, this is very rewarding. I'm not saying it's easy. You have to have some perseverance there. <laughs> uh, but uh, I think in that sense, it's very rewarding. In what concerns uh, going through science specifically and looking to natural resources, let's put it this way, soil and water and forests. I think that um, uh, every day that passes, we give more and more importance to the ecosystem services provided by our nature. And there is this feeling that we need to preserve in order to survive, if we want to say it like this, to the most challenging, uh, um, to the challenges we have ahead of us. So on the same line, I would say that it, uh, it is very rewarding to see if you provide a solution for instance, I, I build up a map for Portugal for the policymakers to to help them to solve the the problems of uh, post fire cell erosion. For me, it was extremely good. People contacting me, having uh, asking for uh, our advice to reply and to help them. So you are not only making a little impact or another coma in the, the whole science uh, 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 story, the whole knowledge, you're actually changing people's lives. And in that sense, if you are passionate about it, I just say, follow it. It's hard, but it's very good. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's very cool. Can you, can you elaborate more on that experience you had? Uh, for instance, so um, I, I was working before here, I was working in a team that uh, studied uh, the impact of wildfires for over 20 years. And there was always this field component where we get uh, uh, gathered a lot of data. Right. And then I entered in the team uh, somewhere in the 2007, and I started developing my skills on modeling soil erosion. So before I leave to Italy, I develop, uh, uh, me and my team, develop a, a whole map for uh, post-fire uh, soil erosion scenarios for Portugal. It's basically the first in the world, and I hope to do it also in a larger scale very soon. So basically, uh, in a case of a fire, for instance, the Portuguese uh, entities that are responsible for uh, um, assessing the impact, they can already go to the places where the risk is 
very likely to be the highest. So I gave them several options of types of fires that can happen for a different types of vegetation. And basically, because this is what I think science is for, then I deliver them all the options for their decision to be the best possible. Because uh, if, the, 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 if you have a huge amount of burned area, uh, this process would be also very, very long for them to study individually. So basically, I just give them everything done. Here you go. You just say, if you want, you can ask me for more. But uh, at this scale, you already can focus your attention into this, this, and these areas. And the main responsibles contacted me and my team in order to get this information the best possible. And uh, that's it. I think that's a very rewarding uh, <laughs> experience. <laughs> yeah, for sure. That's exactly what environmental science is about. It's for the people. It's um, having them understand what's, what's happening. Yeah, that's, that's very cool. Um, and I guess, like, what else does... Uh, I, you were talking about, like... Um, services that the ecosystem provides, right? There's forests. Forests are extremely important. Um, I want to expand on more about how, um, like the importance of forests, like why are we so worried about them in the first place? <laughs> well, uh, the ecosystem services between forests and forest soils are, are very, very, uh, very, uh, are, uh, a lot. Right. Let's say like this, Let, let's pick up on the most basic, uh, uh, human needs, let's say. Forests give us uh, wood, fibers, uh, food. Uh, forest gives us habitats for biodiversity. Forests uh, help us uh, and soils help us uh, regulate climate. Forests uh, are very important for uh, water regulation. So they not only um, control the flow, preventing floods because they are retaining the water slowly and also uh, the forest and forest filter the water so in order that you have water quality downstream of uh, of an area and they provide this is essential that's why also the impact of fire are so dramatic because Generally, you don't have erosion in the forest, but when you have a fire pass from zero to tons of sediments uh, getting out of that place. Mm -hmm. And yeah, carbon sequestration. I mean, what is the best way besides oceans? Of course, ocean has a big component in our globe here of uh, removing carbon, uh, carbon from the atmosphere. Just uh, just. Uh, plant trees and grow up these trees and collect the carbon in the form of resources that we use wood etc 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 yeah exactly yeah so um maybe like what kind of solutions would you suggest like individuals do because i think uh one of the biggest things about climate change is that people think that small impacts don't have much of a large impact However, it's important to note that when you have multiple small impacts, that really adds up to something that can really help us um, prevent a dangerous, like the terrible impacts from climate change. So what would you suggest that people um, in their everyday lives change? 
Ah, this is a uh, highly complex. <laughs> well, uh, uh, like similarly to these uh, actions of catching uh, plastic on the beach, that uh, in the end, if a lot of people do, they'll have a huge impact. Well, when um, dedicated to forests and soils in general, I think that uh, uh, the most urgent thing, I think, uh, for the entire population is basically the awareness of the importance of these uh, ecosystems in first place, okay? We, when we are in the forest, we understand its greatness, we enjoy, but we go back to our house. We don't spend a whole life in a forest. And people sometimes when they work and live in the forest, let's say like uh, persons that have a uh, uh, piece of land and they, they have a, a small forest or a small agricultural land, etc., etc., they are more connected. But sometimes um, this uh, understanding of the contribution they give to the whole pl planet it's not entirely understood they actually contribute a lot right mm -hmm. uh, most of the people live in urban areas so these uh, inland areas that in which let's say a smaller amount of people live and cooperate perhaps can have individual a bigger impact if they take care of their um little land with protecting the soil or also having better sustainable management practices right. for instance uh, simple things using less pesticides using less fertilizers uh, little things and for the common for the common population i would say that doesn't mean necessarily they have a land or something I would say that cherish the for cherish the forest, enjoy and have awareness of the the importance of their role. I think share the word. I think that's the most urgent thing right now. Yeah, I think that's exactly what you're doing. You're bringing awareness to all these different aspects, and that's awesome because now people who are listening can also go and share this um, with other people living near them and spreads like like the coronavirus yes. <laughs> um, all that knowledge yeah that's very interesting um and very very glad that you're able to to communicate the science you're working on because I think it's extremely important for the people who are experiencing this to do that yeah so um I guess what uh are there any things that you um like wish you had known today that you might have uh that, that you wish you known uh, when you started off sorry um that you know now. Well, there's there's one <laughs> there's one thing, I would have to say I I, I changed a lot since uh, my early days when I was studying environmental engineering, and one of the things was that uh, my ex, uh, expectant, uh, what I expected I would be in the future, was way below. What I am now, in general, it's not how how it happens, right? You generally dream. <laughs> I wish this this could yeah. happen. So I, I had a lot of this feeling of feet on the ground, and uh, I'm going to be very moderate in my. And I understood very easily that with very good hard working, you can go very far and you can actually have a good impact. So believing in yourself 
it's perhaps uh, perhaps I could have done it a little bit earlier in my in my state. If I if I you ask any professor of mine in university, they would never expect me uh, expect for me to be a scientist, for instance. And now I talk with them, and they because I'm very well connected to my my university teachers, and they're like, I don't know, but it looks like you changed. No, my perspective changed, and my mentality changed so I became much more aware of my capacities and how much impact I could produce so I started believing in myself a little bit more and tried to give to be an example for others too which is something that is really important for me uh, uh, to be able to inspire others uh, future students of environmental engineering to follow the same path because I think this is um, very important. Yeah, I wish I could have done it earlier. That's it. <laughs> of course. I mean, we all wish we could have done something a little bit differently, but it's really great that you're, um, I'm sure any student in environmental engineering listening to you, your, uh, your words in this podcast would definitely be inspired to go make <laughs> And just to like close um, our wonderful conversation off, um, are there any other interesting experiences you would like to share from your career or when you're out doing field work and other research? Well, um, I, I had a very, um, I don't know, most of the, the, the nicest experiences I had were in field work. Mm -hmm. I would like to say that I also tried uh, to, uh, go to different areas and I when I was uh, after I finished my master I also tried to follow a little bit the line on um, uh, fire behavior a little bit uh, on the subject of trying to predict where fire would go and yeah. I did the most interesting field work ever there but it's uh, uh, ethically it's uh, quite uh, heartbreaking because I did uh, prescribed burning experimental fires actually so I did I created with the team in security a lot of uh, fires so that we could know, could know the control conditions pre-fire conditions create a new fire and uh, and um, see the new fire see the, the impacts of this fire so we can make better predictions but was really heartbreaking to see uh, so we would burn this was in uh, uh, Galicia no uh, northwest from Spain we burn several hectares of land that would take us uh, Every actor, let's say, would burn a parcel of one actor. We would um, take an entire day of inserting thermocouples, measuring vegetation to see how much vegetation you have, how much fuel you had. And then, uh, I, I don't know, this would be like six hours of field work with a team of. Um, 20 persons at least oh, wow. and then you set up the fire and that thing goes away and burns everything in five minutes basically <laughs> you have just a glimpse of the thing and yeah this this was a very important experience to me mm -hmm. the field work was very hard 
was somewhere like 30 degrees and uh, when when it's burning it's, it can be a little bit dangerous it's a tense situation but um, i learned uh, much more about fires by actually seeing how the fire behaves mm -hmm. than ever despite it was really hard to see uh, to cause some harm in the in the environment uh, for for science <laughs> let's say like that but well was rewarding anyway yeah i'm sure like just seeing yourself how the fire moved and what was going to be burnt next like like you said the fire behavior was would be would have been like essential to know um but also like you said heartbreaking uh, to actually start those fires yeah that's really that's a that that's got to be a profound experience um and lastly if anyone would like to reach out to you um where can they do so ah uh, that's very easy you can uh, reach out to, to me in uh, twitter i'm uh, there uh i can uh, provide uh, my Twitter name in the end if you want it's dikazivi i'm there uh, basically that's my uh, profile for uh, for my research in which i share all everything that you need to know about fires <laughs> and soils and any comment or message or interest in general are welcome you can reach out there to me and it's uh, it's okay Wonderful. I'll put your uh, your Twitter handle or whatever it's called um, in the podcast description for sure. Sounds good. <laughs> okay. Well, we have been speaking to um, Diana Vieira, and I just want to thank you, Diana, for um, joining me here and sharing your thoughts on um, wildfires, wildfire management, and soil erosion. Um, I really appreciate it, and I've learned a lot. Um, so thank you very much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. You are very, you are very nice. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>